Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is January the 16th, 2015, and this is episode 1501 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, it is, what day is it? Friday! 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 That's right, time for your calls to the Think Line. 866-65-THINK, 866-65-T-H-I-N-K. One more time, 866-658-44. 65 is the number you can dial. Now, if you call that number, you're not going to get me. You're going to get a recording. You're going to leave a message. And if you do it with the formula you hear used today, there's about a 25 to 40% chance you're going to get on the air, depending on call volume for the week. If you call in and within two weeks you do not hear yourself on the air and you want your question answered, it may be that you've done nothing wrong. You might even ask a great question. I just may not have gotten to you because once I get a certain number of calls screened out, I move on. And uh, I don't go so far back, you know. So I'm just kind of giving you the impetus then to recall. The way to make sure you get on if I do hear your call is, one, ask your question, make your point in 25 seconds or less. You can do it. You don't need details to do that part. You can do it in less, I promise you. My question is, my thought is, ba-boom. Then, give me all the details you wish following it. I promise you, your call will go better. It will be easier for you to make, and you will be more likely to get on the air. Trust me, I'm a professional. I do this for a living. I'm just kind of teasing there a little bit. But seriously, really, that is the case. And then the next thing is, call from a quiet area, and if you're on a cell phone, look at your bars and make sure there's at least a couple bars on there before you make the call. Because if you're cutting out, there's no one to let you know you're cutting out. I get at least one call a week from somebody, and I can tell, man, like, oh, this would be a, this would be a good one, and I just can't really understand it, because it, 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 like that. All right. Anyway, with that, let us get into taking care of our sponsors today. Sponsor of the day, number one, Sawtooth Tactical. You got, you, you know why they're called Sawtooth? Because they're in the Sawtooth Wilderness of Idaho. That's why. Veteran-owned, veteran-operated company with all the stuff you need to live that tactical lifestyle. Check them out today at sawtac.com. And remember, they do do a discount for members of the Support Brigade. And I'm telling you, it is the tactical place to check out. If you want Magpul magazines, they got it. You want SOE tactical gear, that you, they got it. They got the titanium manly spork. They got it all at Sawtooth Tactical, sawtac.com. Next up today, bulkammo.com. The one thing you... You don't get at Sawtack is ammo. It's all the stuff but the ammo. The stuff put the ammo in, right? Like magazines or clips. <gasps> Did he say clip? Oh, whatever. Anyway, <laughs> hey, you might be using clips. Who knows? Anyway, but bulkammo.com is what you can use to fill up those rifle magazines, those rifle clips, those ammo pouches, you name it, with lots of ammo so you can practice. So you can go out and actually run that gun and train with that gun. Bulk Ammo's got great prices. Shipping so fast, your neck will snap at how quick it ends up at your front door. And was like, how do, how do they do that? Um, they do it with great pricing and great service. We're glad to have them as a sponsor. They just renewed for another year, guys. That tells you they're a loyal sponsor to what we do. Dustin over there is an awesome guy. Yeah, I know my sponsors, uh, the presidents and owners of the companies on a first-name basis. That's the kind of vetting they get before they end up in front of you. Check them out today. When I need a lot of ammo and I need it fast, I go to BulkAmmo.com. You should, too. Next up, let us look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1501. Yes, we have crossed into a new century and half a millennium. 
We have Italian slave girls for trade. We also have the secret treaty of Granada. And why Sharia law seemed like a good idea at the time. Uh, I'm going to read the Sharia law one because I think there's a lot of uh, true and untrue things going on about Sharia law right now, especially in the United States of America. And I have a pretty interesting my take when I get done with Alex Shrug's take. Now, of course... Alex Shrugged is who puts these together for us over at TSPWiki.com. You guys should every once in a while just send out a thank you to Alex because he puts a ton of work into this, and he is literally creating an encyclopedia of the years that have led up to where we are for you guys at the Wiki and giving you a sense of reflection that you otherwise would not have. And let's face it, probably doing a better job of telling you why history matters than the public education system didn't do. Anyway, why Sharia law seemed like a good idea at the time. That doesn't seem to make any sense at all. Wait till I read it. Agawahi didn't want the job. He was a 60-year-old and for, 60 years old and a former slave who had risen to a high position. But when the current sultan went missing, the emirs cast around for someone to take his place. Agawahi knew that the Malamuk justice system needed serious reform. If you had enough money, a local emir could make justice happen for you. To any point of view, this this type of system is ripe for corruption. Agarahi becomes sultan and establishes central courts based on Sharia legal principles and bans all others. A power struggle erupts, and it is clear the emirs are not going to comply for several reasons, not the least of which is that it will cha the change will take away a major source of income. The sultan will try again later, but in the end, he will fail. My take by Alex Shrugged, in the modern day, Sharia law seems unduly strict and brutal, yet in the early days it was an improvement over the kind of corruption and brutality of medieval custom. For comparison, in 1501, Pope Alexander VI allowed slave girls to be sold in Rome, and the Spanish Inquisition allowed torture and burning at the stake. It is obvious that Christian, Islamic, and Jewish legal systems have brutal laws on the books that modern-day religious people find uncomfortably embarrassing. Um, Christians and Jews have found ways to circumvent those laws without abandoning their core principles. Islam must find a way to do the same and sell it to their laity. The modern day has no place for brutish elements of a medieval law system. My take by Jack Spierko, I think that uh, many people of the Christian and Jewish faith who decry the actions um, of Islam, specifically when they say, well, they do this because it's in their book, the Koran, might do well to read their own book and realize that it took, within their own faiths, as Alex points out, a reform. A reform to not follow their own book, because for everything you can show me in the Koran that is something that I would consider an evil way to hand out justice or an evil way to look at legal systems, I can show you one in the Torah, also known as the Old Testament if you're a Christian. Some pretty barbaric things like the stoning of a young man for not following the wishes of his father. Just saying. We might need to, as a, a later uh, individual within the, uh, the, the Christian faith said, uh, get the, uh, the, the, the log out of our own eye before we point to the speck in somebody else's. Just saying. Now, here's my real take on this. It's the state. I don't care if the state is a theology. I don't care if it's an oligarchy. I don't care what it is. Once again, you see actually a plea being made here for Sharia law. And that is, hey, it's not great, but it's the lesser of two evils. That's the justification. In 1501, 
Hey, yeah, we'll cut your hand off, but at least we'll cut everybody's hand off for the same offense, and you can't buy your way out of it, right? So it's better. It's the lesser of two evils. Hey, you know, both of these guys are traitors to the Constitution running for presidency of the United States, which is supposed to be the greatest and freest nation in the world. They're both scum. They're traitors. They're going to take in unconstitutional actions the day they swear to uphold the Constitution. They're going to do it, and they're going to get away with it. But we should vote for one of them because he's the lesser of two evils. The more things change, the more they stay the same. On the Sharia law thing, I would like to point something out. Stop posting the stupid-ass memes on Facebook that say that Sharia law has come to America and courts in America are allowing Sharia law and you can throw acid in somebody's face to, to punish her if she's about... It's all bullshit. It's all bullshit. Don't propagate bullshit, people. Am I saying that Sharia law is a good thing? No. Am I saying that some European countries aren't stupid and haven't allowed the installation of Sharia law in their own countries in some communities? No, I'm not saying those countries aren't stupid and didn't do that. I'm saying it didn't happen here. It didn't happen here. It didn't happen here. And no picture with no quote next to it and no horrible thing that happened to somebody is going to prove that it happened here. And I've seen that stupid thing on Facebook about a thousand times now from some of you guys, because you're about the only people I interact with online anyway on Facebook, right? You, you, call, you guys are my friends. I only have a few friends from my prior life, let's say. And when I see this, it just, it just disgusts me, because you're not doing any research in anything. It's the one that says like 29 states have allowed this to, to take place and to be a defense. No, they haven't. You can't show me one. And I've posted a response to that that says, show me one, I'll give you a thousand bucks. And you know what comes after that? <whistles> Crickets. Crickets. Because you know what? You can't. There's not a single place in America today where someone could commit a violent act against somebody else, go into our court system and use Sharia laws of defense and for, and at work. Not even in Dearborn, Michigan. So why don't we stop the hysteria and deal with the actual issues and problems of the day? My take by Jack Spierko. With that, I do want to ask you to consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You can help support this show if you think it's worth two dimes an episode. I work really hard to make sure that Member Support Brigade membership pays you back more than you put into it to make it worth your time to have in the first place. If you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps active due to your prior service or first responders like EMTs, paramedics, or firefighters, you do qualify for a discount. Email me before, not after you join. Service discount TSPC in the subject line. And one or two sentences, tell me about your service, and I'll get you that discount code back. Just do that before, not after you join. And with that, I want to get into your calls. But before I do, I want to say probably the final time on the air, uh, much about Gen4.com. It's kind of becoming its own thing at this point uh, to be run as its own entity. But for those of you that are new to the show, I have uh, initiated about 60 days ago uh, an initiative called Gen Forward. It stands for Generations Forward. And I ran an Indiegogo campaign about that. And I've been putting out some emails in the last few days to kind of spur on some uh, funding of it. And it's not donations unless you do five bucks. The five bucks be a lot for people who just want to donate. But anything beyond that, basically you're buying an account in advance for a discount. Uh, we do have the beta coming out either today or Monday. I have to talk to Bobby Wilson, our, our lead developer, as soon as I'm done with the show today. Um, and he's pretty hot to talk to me, so it may be delayed a couple days. I, I don't know. Uh, but it will be out. We will have the beta. It, it is a reasonably stable beta. I've already created my account started playing with my account. Uh, but Gen Ford allows us to have better communications with our family today. 
and preserve information and lessons about life and things like our spiritual beliefs, our political beliefs, our whatever they are, and not have battles with people on Facebook about them, but actually preserve them so that our future generations can look back and see what Uncle Jack or Great Grandfather Jack or what have you, your 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 prodigy, can look back and see what you really believed and thought about the world and have instead of having somebody else tell them what was going on. Because we've learned just in our history lessons alone that a lot of what you hear in school ain't the truth. It just isn't. And uh, I believe this stuff needs to be preserved now, and people need to know where they've come from and where they're going. I believe when we talk about the millennial generation and tell, say that they're the lost generation, well, of course they're lost. They don't know where they came from, and they have no idea where they're going. Maybe we can fix that. So that's what Gen Ford's all about. Uh, we set a $25,000 goal. I don't think we're going to hit it, but we are 78% there. Uh, we were sitting at 12000 at the beginning of this week after most of the campaign was over. We had a big surge here at the end. We're at 19581 I'd like you to consider, if you have not already done so, supporting what I'm doing with Gen Ford. Get over there and look at the perks that are available. Remember, as you go into higher levels, not only do you get longer membership terms at a discount, you get a lot that you can give away for free. Uh, so you can, you can turn to other family members and say, here's a free account for a year. Uh, and you can, you can wait basically until we get past the beta stage and we're into the stable feature rich stage to give out those memberships as well. Uh, so it's really a great deal. It's really a great product. And here's the thing. We'll get a big refund from Indiegogo if we hit our goal. I might have set our goal a little bit high. I might have got a little bit too ambitious at 25,000. Right now, it seems like it would have been a really good idea to set it at 20, but I didn't. So we have until midnight tonight, uh, to bring in another, $5,400 odd dollars. Uh, I'd, I'd really appreciate some of you guys considering uh, backing us. We do not need it to develop Generation 1 of the platform, but the more we have, the more we can develop faster. I'll also let you know this. Something really big is coming Monday or Tuesday about Gen Forward um, that isn't really Gen Forward. It's, we made a pledge. We made a nine-point pledge with Gen Forward. We call it our forces for good. And one is to make sure that every year we give back a portion of our profits to support other organizations. I'm going to tell you about a fabulous organization, a grassroots organization doing wonderful things on Monday. And I'll tell you that we'll be doing our first contribution in our Forces for Good campaign before the company's really even completely on its feet. More to come about that possibly later today, but definitely Monday or Tuesday next week. All right, with that, uh, let's get to your calls. These are your calls to the Think Line again, 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. And here is our first call of the day. Hi, Jack. This is Ben from South Carolina. I'm also an alumni of the Woody Bed Workshop. I have a problem with my free-range chickens. They're eating dog poop. Here are the details. I have 12 chickens. They're Buff Orpington and something else kind of mix, and they're about 22 weeks old, but at least as far as I can tell, they haven't started laying eggs yet. They, from the very beginning, have been on an organic soy-free feed to supplement what they can find by going in the woods. Uh, also, uh, oh, right now they're in about an acre-and-a-half fenced pasture that's about half woods. Also in that pasture is an Anatolian Shepherd Lifestart guardian dog. Um, He's a big dog, and he's got big poop. Uh, in, in general, he goes off in the woods to do his business, and what I found here in the last couple of days is that the chickens will go off into the woods to get a snack. This is disgusting, and, and, and I just can't believe my chickens are off doing this. Um, was wondering, is this in any way normal for chickens? 
we, we just can't bring ourselves to eat dog poop eggs or dog poop chicken and just not sure what to do. I'd really rather not separate the dog from the chickens because we have coyotes and other predators in the area and they need some protection. Do you have any suggestions or any ideas? Thank you very much. Bye. Well, when I when I first heard this, I, I immediately thought, well, there's two things here. One, yeah, there's something missing from the diet, and because of that, they're supplementing, they're self-supplementing, because there is a, a fact that many times animals will result to eating feces uh, because something's missing, and if you replace that, they'll stop. We had a problem with, for instance, Max used to eat compost. Uh, and I don't mean manure. I mean like composted manure and everything else. He ate compost, and we looked into it and supplemented a few things in his diet, and he he stopped doing it. And it was really more of a mineral issue. So maybe that was the case, and but probably not. Probably not. Chickens have such omnivorous attitudes. It's almost you know in, impossible for a bird on good feed plus being free-range to really have any kind of serious deficiency uh, that would be corrected through eating dog poop. So the other thought was, well, maybe they're not eating the poop. Maybe what they're doing is they're just trashing through it to find things in it because chickens will do that with anything. They don't have the biases or ick factor that we do, and, and maybe that would be it. So I looked this up, and it, no, uh, chickens eat poop, period. They eat dog poop. Uh, there are literally hundreds of posts and forums and things like that with people saying, my chickens eat poop, my chickens follow dogs around waiting for them to poop, they fight over dog turds, etc. I've not seen that behavior here. However, the majority of the chickens live in a one-acre area, and the dogs primarily spend their time in a two-acre area. And except for a small group of chickens known as the Houdini chickens, um... They, they're, you know, they're just not in contact with it. But then yesterday when I walked around, I noticed there's a distinctive lack of dog poop. Now, I'm not saying there's none. I'm just saying for two big dogs that, you know, produce quite a bit of this because they eat a lot. Um, there's not, so maybe those Houdini chickens are consuming this too, or at least scratching through it. So I tried to determine if there's any real health risks to this, and I have to say it's something I'd prefer a chicken not do. Uh, I agree with you, and there's a gross factor, but I would also point out that you know, if your chickens were tearing through um, a dead animal carcass out in the forest and eating a maggot, you'd probably think, well, that's great. In fact, people do things like if there's a piece of roadkill or something, they might hang it up in a tree, and then flies come, and then the maggots drop out to the ground, and the chickens pick them up. So people actually do that to feed the chicken a maggot, and you probably would consider the consumption of a maggot pretty disgusting, maybe up there with the, you know, maybe not as bad, but I would think the rotting meat factor is pretty much just as gross as poo, and I wouldn't want to eat either one. So um, do we really get our shorts in a twist about this? And I, I don't know that we do. You have to ask yourself, is this chicken behaving as nature sees fit really enough of a concern to follow around a giant dog with a pooper scooper, put a diaper on his butt, or to let the dog not go where the chickens go and thereby open up the chickens to predation. And I just have to say I don't think that it is. I think this is something on some levels you have to live with. 
Um, I don't know of a good solution, especially in your case. And I don't know that I would do anything to worry about it other than your eggs should be fully cooked. Um, I wouldn't be going and doing like really soft eggs or anything then. So um, maybe. I, I don't know. I found some claims that this might make it more likely that you could have a salmonella infection. But the truth is you always have that risk with poultry. Uh, in fact, a, a dog is less likely to be the carrier than the chicken is in the first place. So I, I don't know. I don't know really, and anybody that has any additional thoughts on this, there's no doubt that there's like a, uh, 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 why are you doing that factor? Um, I will tell you that our neighbor brings us horse manure, and the chickens just tear through that. But they don't seem to eat it, but they do eat seeds and things out of it, and they tear that up. We don't even... Think about that being a problem. Of course, a horse is an herbivore, and a dog is an omnivore. A horse patty and a dog patty are very, very different things. And you don't go putting dog patties you know, straight onto your garden, and horse manure can pretty close just go straight to a garden. So it's funny that we, though, you know, it's, oh, we, the chickens scratch through horse manure and cow patties, and that's fine, but then when they do it with a dog patty, we have a problem. And I guess the, the question is, are they actually eating it or are they tearing it up and like i said from everything i read and people with this concern they grab the whole thing and run away with it Ugh. any thoughts guys out there uh anybody ever remediate this problem with something other than a barrier in other words some sort of a supplement i mean it seems to me like they just like it and does anybody know with certainty if there's any um, sanitary concerns and nutritional concerns, you know, with the egg produced by a chicken that's doing this. And God, did I just get another reason to go to ducks? Ducks don't eat dog poop. I can tell you that for a fact. I've seen ducks walk right past the dog and just like, oh man, don't, don't do that here, dude, and go on about their duck way. So once again, another arrow in the quiver for the superiority of, of ducks is the homestead bird. Uh, let's take another call. Hi, this is Nathan in Holland, Texas. Uh, my question is, is it, is it okay to get, um, in my situation, uh, order a swarm of bees from a food of mail? Um, I've got some... I, wild bees in a tree, an oak tree, and I want them to stay there. I don't want anything, any issues to happen. I don't really want them to crossbreed with a different breed. I like to keep them native. And I want to add bees to my homestead. I, I've already built a top bar hive. Um, I, I want to get wild bees, but it's, it's easier just to get them through the mail. I've had a, kind of a hard time finding a, a, a source around here to get some wild ones. And I just wanted to know if there's any issues with that. Um, am I going to end up crossing my, my wild bees? I know um, they only mate once, the queen, but when the queen dies, the, another one is going to be mating probably with the hive that's going to be in my box. Um, anyway, if you have any idea about this, thanks. Well, don't take anything I'm about to say the wrong way, but I can tell by the way the question comes out that you're much like me. In fact, I'd say 
less than me, a novice beekeeper, because I've actually had bees now for half a year, and suited up and worked with them and worked with my mentor and and learned some things about them and fed them and, and, and what have you. We haven't done any extraction yet or anything. We won't do that till next year. But so I'm a little further along. <clears throat> and in that being a little further along and having now interviewed probably 12 people that are beekeepers across the years on the show and going very deep, deep into the topic, I can tell this is a very new thing for you. You've probably never done it at all. So the, my, my honest first answer is get a local mentor. Get someone who will come out with you and teach you the craft. You can take courses, and that's all great, and I think that's wonderful, and I think it expands what you can do, and you'll learn more than your mentor if you do things like that and all. But in the end, the, the getting started phase, I don't think there's anything that helps a person more than someone with confidence and knowledge standing next to them and showing them this is what you do, and this is how you don't piss the bees off, and this would be a bad thing if you did this. And since, you know, this is difficult, and I, I've learned things already about my weak eye, and when you put my weak eye behind a bee veil, it, it, it causes even more depth perception issues that I have uh, in working. It's almost like, to me, a little bit kind of like wearing night vision or something, where you don't really get the depth of field very well, at least I don't. So I'll do things like I'll hit something a little harder than I intended to, especially on my left side. So working with a mentor, like he's like, well, why are you doing it? And I'm saying, okay. And he says, well, then maybe instead of pulling the combs out by hand, you'd better be you'd be better off getting a, a clamp to pull the combs out. So you know, I ordered a clamp to pull the combs out, and that helps me. And it's important when you're pulling combs out. Now this is a Landstroff hive I have that you don't roll the, the the bees. You don't want you want to pull it straight up. And with my issues with depth perception and all, by going dead center of the, the, the frame, it makes it a little easier for me to extract uh, the hive. And, and I've also found out that if I wear uh, some of the gloves that beekeepers wear with the rubber, that it causes my arms and my hands to break out. So I use a leather glove uh, that has a little less tactical tactile sensation, right? So that also makes using that clamp a lot better because the one time I was pulling a frame with my mentor, Jason, I really felt I was going to drop it. I was surprised at how heavy it was, and I couldn't get a good grip with these gloves that I use. So that's a lot of things I wouldn't have learned, or I might have learned the hard way without a mentor. So I'm going to say first, mentor. Now, to your question, there's nothing wrong with getting a package of bees through the mail. Nothing at all, nothing at all, nothing at all. Will they crossbreed with wild bees? That's always a potential. Doesn't matter if there's bees in your oak tree or not. There's always bees somewhere. Don't worry about it. And this is why you need a mentor, because if you do get a, a situation where you've gotten some level of, let's say, hostility, your bees have gotten a little bit hotter, right? You might have to requeen. And by requeening, within six weeks, you pretty much change the whole temperament of that hive. Because even though they might breed with multiple drones, the queen's genetics are half of the base code. And within six to eight weeks, almost everybody that was alive the day the new queen went in there is dead, at least during the active season. So that's something the mentor would be able to help you with. Michael Jordan, the bee whisperer, has a system he uses with his hives. If he's out working a hive, and that hive gets hot and comes up on him, he puts a red tag on it. Okay? And then you get a date for that tag when they're settled down. And if they come up on him again, they get another red tag. If he, they get three red tags in 90 days, he's squishing queens and requeening. And it's just like, okay, you've had your chance, you're done. 
That's the type of thing that is very helpful to have a mentor with. Um, I've learned, and I firmly believe now, that most beekeepers mess with the bees too much. I think once every month or two months, you check make sure nothing's going wrong, take corrective action if it is, make sure they have supplemental feed when they need it, and leave them the hell alone. They're bees. They know what to do. So I would say mentor, get a package of bees, install it. Um, I definitely have multiple different genetic strains in my hives. You can look at our bees, and you can see this one's a little bit different color, this one's a little bit different here, there, and there. Well, they all have the same mom, but they have different dads. Okay? It's just all there is to it. They have different dads. And But I got my bees from Jason, my, my, my bee mentor, and he has worked for a long time to breed a bee that's very gentle, very passive, uh, doesn't get upset with you. They do, when we're working the hive, they get a little bit pissed once in a while, and they start like, they start kind of popping you in your veil. Like, not really attacking you, just kind of like, hey, dude, back off. And uh, he said the strain actually was so passive that when he, that he worked up to the passivity that you could pet them, and they were cool, you know? And he said he put actually a little bit of heat back into them, so to speak, so they would defend their hives. They, he had actually gotten too passive. Now, see, this is a guy that works with bees a lot. Like, it's a profession for him. It comes from his family. And when you're buying packaged bees, if you know the source, you're getting that type of uh, care put into the genetics of your bees. And you don't get that from a wild swarm. Now, you could start with a wild swarm if you want to. But, again, when you buy bees, it's not a swarm. It's a package. Right? Just, just so you know, a swarm is a swarm. Um, I wouldn't worry about the bees in the oak tree that much anyway. I would get a mentor, though, and you also want to make sure those are bees, dude. Like, they might be like, no, yellow jackets, and they can, they can be a problem. If you have a large colony of yellow jackets near a honeybee hive, you might need to take corrective action, if you know what I mean. So get that mentor. And then and the other thing I would say is if you want to order bees, it needs to be very, very soon, and they usually deliver, I think, around May 1st. Um, so find someone locally and say, if I'm not going to get them locally, then who would you order from? And I would consider trying to buy a package from a local person. And if you talk to local people and you find a mentor that was willing to come out and show you things and work with you, and most beekeepers love to do that. They love to spread the trade. Buy a package from him. Most good bee mentors are going to be doing division of hives in the spring, And they're going to have packages that they're either going to put into a new hive of their own or they're going to sell off as a package for the you know, same price, basically, you would pay uh, to buy bees from a, a source online. So then you've got a knowledge of the race that you're working with. And I think that's the best way to go. And I'm going to tell you, especially with top bar hives, get a mentor. Because Jason has already taught me, like, okay, this is how we inspect a, a comb from a Landstroff hive, and you could turn it this way and turn it that way and look at it like this and all. He's like, you don't do that with a top bar hive. He's like, you flip it around like this so that the, because if you turn it sideways and it puts stress, the comb breaks off. Well, I didn't know that. And if it's full of bees, they might be pissed, right? So again, I just want to make the case for getting a local mentor. No matter how much information you gain elsewhere, I see that information as being adjunctive and taking you to the next level. I think the core 
This is how we take care of the bees. This is how we put the bees in the hive. This is how we make sure the bees aren't aren't dying. This is uh, you know what we do and what we don't do. How little we touch them. How much we touch them. When we have to get involved. When we leave them alone. And just also instilling in you the confidence to work with them. Mentorship, man. Mentorship. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Chris from New Jersey. Uh, I had a question, your thoughts about uh, dehydrators. Um, I remember you saying at a couple points you had an Excalibur. Uh, I was just wondering what your preferred dehydrators were, um, pluses and minuses of different models that you've worked with. Thanks. Bye. When it comes to dehydrators that you would buy, plug into the wall, turn on, and use, there's the Excalibur, and then there's everything else. That, that's how I personally feel. It costs more because it's worth it. I think most other dehydrators work okay. Okay. Most of them are stacked, and they pull air vertically from, from top to bottom. The Excalibur is in trays that slide in, so they are still stacked above each other, but it pulls air in a cross current. And what that means is you get even dehydration on every tray, okay? Uh, where when you do a stacked model and you have items stratifying above and below each other, as moisture is being pulled out of one, it's being pulled into the other. And you get uneven dehydration in my experience. So I had a low-end dehydrator at one time, one of the little five uh, stacked round ones, and it made okay stuff. It, I'm not saying it didn't work, and it will work. An Excalibur just will work better. Um, the other thing I like about Excalibur is there's a motor in it, and that motor is a is a is a champion workhorse, man. It is a badass motor. But in the rare event that that motor ever goes, it's really not something that's used or serviceable unless like a if a connection comes off it or something. But if it does fry, and I've heard from one or two people who have fried, and mine I've put through hell, and it's still going like it did the day we got it. But if it does happen to go and die, there's four screws. You take them out, you yank the motor out, you send it to Excalibur, and they send you a spanking brand new one for free, and you stick it in your Excalibur dehydrator, which will never break unless you drop it, because um, it does not have moving parts other than the motor, um, and you go on with life. And that's American products at their best. Uh, I have a question about America. Is America the best when it comes to making things uh, for Monday? And I have an interesting opinion on that. And we'll say that for later. But this is America when it comes to being the best we can be with a product, Excalibur. Um, just fabulous. Now, the one thing I've seen preppers say, because preppers always have these great big, wide, bushy eyes. I'm going to store thousands of buckets of food, right? And uh, There's only nine trays in that thing. And it doesn't do enough in one batch and, and what have you. If I were going to go to a commercial-level production of dehydrated things, let's say apples. I was going to do an apple orchard, and I was going to put away and sell apples in abundance. I would build a much larger solar dehydrator. I definitely would. A solar dehydrator is a great project to build anyway. There's all different types of them online. Uh, Jeff Lawton recently had a video out. I think the video he had out last time, not the one that came out today, um, with a really interesting take on how to build a solar dehydrator and changing the airflow so it went from top to bottom versus bottom to top. And it was really cool. I'll see if I can figure out which video that was in and put a link in the show notes for you if I can today. Um, but that was interesting. That would be something I would look at if I was going big scale. 
But if you're a small home backyard producer and you're going to pick stuff up from farmer's markets and all and dehydrate it, let me tell you, uh, an Excalibur will wear you out. We've filled up the Excalibur. Other than our little experiments with frozen vegetables, because we've played around with frozen vegetables. They're already blanched, right? So we've gone out and bought like bags and bags, big bags of frozen vegetables and dehydrated them and vacuum sealed them. It works great. It does. Um, especially if you can find them on sale and if you can find organic that's on sale and a frozen vegetable like Whole Foods, you get a big old bunch of like organic peas or corn or potato and dehydrate that. You can make a lot of dehydrated food very inexpensively. And that you can fill it up with pretty quick because you just dump it on there and you buy as much as you want. When it comes to dehydrating the stuff you produce, where you have to actually cut it and possibly, depending on what it is, blanch it and then dehydrate it, the nine trays that I think will wear you out. We filled it once, and we filled it and had to do it again the next day and fill it halfway the next day. And there's a picture that's been around on Facebook a few times of my countertop in Arkansas of jalapeno peppers. And it's about a seven-foot-wide, two-foot-tall, three-foot-deep pile of jalapenos. We sliced those and dehydrated the majority of them because, well, we didn't have any way to use that many any other way that fast. I still have jars of this stuff. I'm still using them in my cooking three years later. That's how many there were. That filled it up one and I'd say one and three quarter times. By the end of that week, Dorothy and I didn't want to see a vegetable and a knife for another week. We were tired of cutting stuff. We really were. All we were doing was just slice, 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 and then pile them up on a tray, slide the tray in, do it again, do it again. It holds a lot, a lot. I do advise you if you are dehydrating hot peppers to not do it in your kitchen because it will feel like somebody, you know, CS gassed your house if you do. Just saying, onions is another thing if you dehydrate certain things, dehydrate them outside. Uh, but the dehydrator is an awesome piece of technology. It is not the silver bullet for all things. There are dehydration enthusiasts that say, when you rehydrate dehydrated stuff, it tastes exactly like it did before. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Some things are closer than others. Corn gets pretty close back to the mark. Green beans are fine for stews and casseroles, but a green bean that's been dehydrated and rehydrated is never the same. Um, broccoli will go fine in a soup, like a broccoli cheddar, but it will never be the same. I'm sorry, I don't mean to pop a bubble, but that's the case. You can scramble and dehydrate eggs, and they come out like, well, kind of pretty good scrambled eggs, but it's never the same. Uh, so it's good for what it's good for. It's excellent for things like fruits. Now, if you dehydrate apples, and your plan is, well, I'm going to rehydrate them and do things like do a, a cake with apples, like a Jewish apple cake or uh, an apple crumb cake or uh, an apple pie, you'd, you'd never know that they were dehydrated. It's phenomenal for stuff like that. Or using them in adjuncts and cooking. Uh, lots of fruits dehydrate very well. Lots of fruits are actually really good to eat as dehydrated fruit. So that's another place that it really you know stands out. Of course, everybody knows about... Raisins are basically dehydrated grapes, and, and then, you know, there's dehydrated uh, uh, plums of certain kinds make prunes and, and what have you, and careful how many of those you eat. But I think what a lot of people don't know is one of the coolest things to dehydrate is blueberries. Now, the problem with blueberries, if you go to dehydrate these guys, is they actually all need to have, you take a toothpick, poke a hole in them one at a time. It gets old, but they make this, like, crazy raisinous blueberry 
thing with like this intense flavor. Uh, so that's a really cool one to do. They also do need to be blanched, but uh, that's or not really blanched, but it makes sense to freeze them first. Uh, to freeze the freeze them and then dehydrate them. I don't know why that works better, but it does. A lot of vegetables need blanching, uh, or they don't dehydrate well, or they discolor. Blanching will be either a water bath uh, or a steam uh, treatment for a certain amount of time. You can find blanching tables online. Just go blanching table vegetables dehydration in Google, and you'll find plenty of tables that tell you how long to blanch and what to blanch and what not to blanch. The nice thing about peppers... You don't have to blanch them. You can just straight dehydrate them. Anyway, um, it's the best. Everything else is second. That doesn't mean it doesn't work. It's just everything else is second. Large scale, I'd go with a solar-based system, uh, an outdoor solar-based system, uh, maybe with a small fan to increase airflow. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Mason in North Georgia, and I have a question about growing elderberry from seed. Now, I had planned on purchasing some elderberry seeds from Horizon Herbs. What they do is they... Uh, dry some of the berries and they ship them to you. You rehydrate them, cut them open, extract the seeds, and plant them. But as I was perusing some other catalogs, I saw that elderberries require a cross-pollinator. One catalog so forcefully said we only sell these in pairs, uh, meaning that they would not produce unless you had both cultivars present in the same location. So my question is, if I'm growing from seed, do I have the same concerns? Or is that just a concern for the particular cultivars that the catalogs are selling? And do I have the same concerns if I'm also going to be trying to germinate some goji berry seeds or some bilberry seeds? I uh, would appreciate any information you have on this, and uh, keep up the good work. Bye-bye. Great question, but I decided to kick that one over to Nicholas Ferguson, uh, who is the plant propagation guru on the Expert Council. Nick, what say you on this question? Hey, Nathan from Georgia. This is Nick Ferguson calling in to answer your question about growing elderberry from seed. Um, yes, it's kind of a concern for like specific cultivars like Adams and Johns, um, York and Nova. Um, but if you're just wanting to start a whole bunch of them from seed, most likely these are going to be just um, an open pollinated version of Sambucus nigra if you're getting seed from dried fruit intended for consumption. So my guess is we're talking about Sam Sambucus nigra. So um, like you said, you're going to separate the seeds and you're going to cold stratify for three months in your fridge. Now, you're going to put them in something like moist vermiculite, not wet, just moist vermiculite. And put them in a bag or a jar and label it so you know what it is in a month and you're wondering, what the heck is this stuff? Um, now, with that said, you can propagate elderberry with um, from seed, but... If you want to get started quicker and have a quicker establishment, you can propagate them with softwood cuttings that you can take in late spring and have productive bushes next year. So growing from seed, you'll need about two to four years before they will fruit. Now, it's easy to find wild elderberry. Most of it is Sambucus nigra. Or you can buy a couple potted plants or a single potted plant from a nursery and take cuttings from that in the spring. Now, of course, you can start thousands from seed in one growing season versus a dozen from a single small potted plant. 
bought from a nursery. But if you can locate wild elderberries growing in your area, they're really easy to take uh, cuttings from and propagate those cuttings. And, you know, you're looking for elderberries growing on the sides of ditches. Normally, they're going to be south or southwest or western facing um, edges of, the, of, of those ditches. They like that that edge environment and they like moisture. So that's where I'd be looking for them in roadside ditches. And all you have to do is find those that first year growth as soon as it starts to harden off a little bit. It's going to be two to three months after it starts growing in the spring that you're going to see that that wood ripening enough to take those softwood cuttings. And you're just going to take the cuttings and stick them in some rooting hormone and grow them under mist. So that's how I do the elderberries. If I wanted elderberries quick, I'd go with softwood cuttings. But you can also do the the seed method. You're just going to want to cold stratify them for about three months in your fridge. Now, the other two questions. Goji are moderately difficult to grow from seed. Um, personally, I would be getting cuttings or buy a growing plant and then propagate those from cuttings. But if you're wanting to start them from seed, then I would separate the seed from the fruit and I would soak that seed in 70 to 80 degree water for a day or two to increase the germination rates. Now, they prefer soil pH between 6.8 and 8. So they like a somewhat alkaline soil. So um, you're going to want to make sure that your soil is not acidic. So if you're starting stuff in peat moss, it's going to be quite acidic and they're not going to like that. So make sure your pH of your soil is slanted more towards the alkaline. Now, you want to try to keep their germinating soil between 64 and 68 degrees. I know that's kind of a narrow window, but like I said, they're moderately difficult to grow from seed. Now, after you're successful sprouting them and they're growing and have about three to six leaves, what you want to do is snip off the apical meristem, that growing tip, the the topmost growing tip. And what that's going to do is that's going to make it bush out. And it's going to promote that bushy growth rather than a tall tree-like growth. And those that bushy growth will produce more berries for you. So that's what I would do on the goji. Now, bilberry. First off, you need to understand that bilberries, a mature bush, will produce just like a small handful of berries per bush. So you will need tons of plants to get any appreciable harvest because they do not produce very heavily. Second, you will also need acidic soils. So you're going to be planting a rather large area to bilberries, or you're going to have a lot of bilberries growing in pots. And third, they're supposedly hard to germinate. Now, I found some scholarly articles on germinating bilberry and I'm just going to read you what I wrote down about what I found. So the best germination rates were from fresh seed selected for the large seeds. So they took the largest seeds out and threw away the small seeds. They did a 12 to 20 week cold stratification. 
they dried the seeds for 10 days after they um, separated them from this fresh seed. So it went separate the fresh seed, they sorted the seeds, they dried them for 10 days, they did a 12 to 20 week cold stratification, and then it was sown on top of sterile peat moss. It was under 24 hour lighting with a bottom heat of 71 degrees and a misting system to maintain moisture levels for the exposed seeds because they were sown right on the top so they can get that light. Now they got a maximum, a maximum of 80% germination with lab conditions. So with that said, honestly, I would try bilberries. Uh, I would buy them dried, packaged up, and keep them in the pantry. And I'd grow blueberries or huckleberries or both. I wouldn't try growing bilberries just because it's a lot of work. And um, most people who try to start bilberries from seed are not successful. So I hope that helps. Sorry if it's not the kind of answer that you were hoping for. But for all of your propagating questions, call them in. I love answering them. This has been Nick Ferguson from the Expert Council. Happy growing. Hi, Jack. Bob, MSC member, digging in in Llano County, Texas. My question, as a permaculturist, you always recommend that a year be spent observing and interacting with a piece of property before making changes. I need you to be more specific. What exactly am I looking for? quick explanation. Thanks again for your very helpful comments last May on what to look for in property in the Hill Country of Texas. We were able to locate and buy seven acres here in Llano County, completing our exodus from the People's Democratic Republic of California via Flagstaff. We avoided the limestone soils and got reddish granite instead. We avoided the prevalent cedars with only one tiny one on our place that I am in the process of eradicating. And we have a reliable, though not overabundant, well, which sits under an abandoned windmill that looks primed to be reactivated. So far, I've charted water flow on and egress from the property. I've noted potential areas for goat paddocks, a nearly one-acre garden, and a chicken coop. What else should I be looking at or for? Thanks again for all your help motivating us and advising us in getting here. And thanks for all the great things you bring to all of us in the MSB. Keep up the great work. On some levels, it comes down to you know it as you see it. Um, there's some things I could point out, like one of the great things you could be doing right now is as we're into the time of year we get frost, even in the Texas Hill Country, um, going out every morning before the frost uh, is gone. And if you do that, you'll look out at a field and you'll see areas where there's frost, and areas where it's just wet dew. It hasn't frozen. These are the days when it's like overnight low is like right at 32 degrees or a degree under, or sometimes a degree over officially, or a couple degrees. Like the overnight low is 34, 35. Well, water doesn't freeze at 35 degrees, but there it is frozen. These show you your frost pockets. You may find natural frost dams this time of year. So what I mean by that is you'll see everything's frozen, and you'll see a piece of texture in the landscape, And then it drops down again like a dam, like a natural, like almost like a pond would be there if it held water. And you see you're all frost, all frost, all frost, and below that there's no frost until you get down the bottom and there's frost again. 
Why? Because the cold air sinks. It falls into that frost pocket. That frost pocket holds up, creates a dam. Those are very interesting places, very places where you plant your hardier to the cold plants where the frost pockets are. You plant your plants that have late blooming where the frost pockets are. You don't want to plant an early peach where there's a frost pocket. A tree ain't going to die, but it goes into bloom early. Frost comes into the frost pocket, bam, and the blossoms fall off, and you got a beautiful tree, no daggone peaches, right? Or if we know there's a frost pocket there, then we know to create a dam above it to at a diversion point to actually drop the cold around and create a microclimate that's just a few degrees warmer, just to cheat that little bit of a late frost. Or that, that late frost that the weatherman says wasn't a frost but was a frost, right? Because you're not, you don't live where he does, okay? And, and then, uh, you know, the land doesn't actually all cool at the same rate. So that's one thing you could be looking at now. What are the patterns of wildlife on your property? What's already there? What species? So you know you only have one, one, uh, one cedar, which is actually juniper. Uh, these are junipers here in Texas that everybody calls cedar. They're not really mountain cedar. They're a juniper tree. Um, and go around and, and you look on that on your property and what else is there? What let's do a fundamental initial plant analysis. What do we have? Um, talk to people in your neighborhood who have lived there uh, for twenty thirty years. Uh, about every seven years is a full cycle of just about every type of weather system that that area will see. You'll see over a seven year period. Longer summers, shorter summers, colder winters, warmer winters, uh, wet years, dry years, about seven-year cycle. It's not 100%, but it's close. If you know someone who's been there 21 years or more, they've been through that three times. They know the extremes after three of those seven-year cycles. That's a great piece of analysis to take. And I would tell you the best thing you can do is just walk your property every day and observe. What to look for is nowhere near as important as looking. Because you'll see things and go, oh, keep a journal. When did this, you know, if there's a certain bird species that's on your property that disappears and comes back, it migrates and it's just gone. Um, then the first time you see one of those birds in the spring, note that date for the future. So, on you know if it's March 18th on March 18th you're looking for them and if they're not there that year that tells you something if there's wild blackberries around you they're prob and there probably is when do they go to flower you write that down and you look for variations in that the blackberries are going to tell you when you can plant a lot of things when you're looking for your last frost date The old timers say when the blackberry flowers, then you wait a week and put your tomatoes in the ground and you won't have to worry about them getting hit with frost. It's pretty accurate. Well, if that's the case and they flower this year two weeks earlier than last year, you might want to think about how that impacts your whole. So there's so much. It's a lifetime of observation. I want to caution people a little bit on the one-year thing. The one-year thing is about major changes. And as you get more experience, you don't necessarily have to observe land for a year. You can go in and immediately say, we know certain things about this. We can do collective intelligence. We can see the weather patterns. We can do, you know, do these things. The one year is more the person that wants to just do their own place. You have the time to use it. Okay. That doesn't mean you don't do anything though. Your zone one stuff, it probably makes sense to spend about a month walking around your zone one. 
about a month, starting to figure out like this is where I'd put my compost, and then you're not even you don't have a compost pile built yet, right? But throw a little you know wire mesh thing there, and every time you have stuff that would go to compost, and you're just building a pile of materials now, take it out there and throw it there. And if it's something that would stink, throw a little bit of straw over it and kind of lasagna it, keep the smell down and keep the bugs down. And just a month of doing that, you might decide, you know what, this is a really bad spot for this. But the, 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 the zone one stuff can start much faster. You know if you want to put in a little herb garden so that you have kitchen herbs, that this is where your kitchen is, this is where your kitchen door is. Now all I got to do is find a place those herbs grow really well. And if I pick too shady or too sunny of a spot for the herbs that I'm growing, it's not a type one error. A type one error is an error that the day you make it, you regret doing it for the rest of your life. Okay, an herb garden can be moved pretty easy. It's not a pond. The one year of observation is a lot about things like swales and things like that. And you don't have to do it. I just find that a lot of people get really excited really fast and want to do something, and they have to do something. And by taking that year of observation, and make and you, this is the other thing, make a design as fast as possible. Sit down with a piece of paper. I don't care if it looks like crap, like a, a, a child uh, in the middle of a seizure drew it with a crayon. As long as you know what it is, map the whole property. This is what I would do. And then observe for two weeks and come back and look at it. And you'll go, that's stupid, that's stupid, that's really a bad idea. That's a great idea. It should be bigger. This should be moved over here and do it again. And then go out and observe. And then come back and look at your drawing and look at your notes. That's the way to do this. So those are some more things to look for. But don't let the one-year rule be a, a hard-line, static law. Let it be a guide based on your experience level and your comfort level. And do start working that close-to-the-property zone one area first. What Jeff Lawton says is walk out of your property, take two steps out your door, look down at that area of three square feet, you know, or a meter square, and design it. And then take two steps and then design that piece. And then take a step to the right and design that piece. And then design that. That's, that's the stuff you're going to touch every day. And then expand out from there. And if you do that, you'll find that you'll take a year to do a really bang-on job of your Zone 1. So those are my thoughts. We put our first major installation in, which was our Zone 4-style food forest with three mainframe swales in October... And we moved to the property in January. So we didn't go a full year. Uh, we had quite a bit of experience and worked on other properties by this point. But even if it would have been my first deal with permaculture, I probably would have done that had I learned enough to know how to do it. Um, I put in a fairly significant structure almost immediately because I was able to look at materials that were already there, look at the landscape form, and ascertain that, that a hoogle-based woody bed system would work there. What exactly would be planted there didn't really matter. The earthwork component could go in and be a good good piece of work. Uh, it could be expanded. It could be irrigated. There was a lot going for it, so we did it right away. So you don't have to always wait. But the bigger the change, the more expensive the change, and the harder to change your mind, the more you think before you do. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Bryce calling from Zachary, Louisiana. I have a question regarding an inherited home and 40-acre farm about an hour away in Mississippi. Here's the details. My grandmother passed away last year and left a 70-year-old home on about 40 acres. 
the house has been renovated and it's in good living condition. Of the 40 acres, 20 acres have been cleared and another 20 acres are planted in time. What should I do regarding the home, for example, taxes and insurance, and what could I do, for example, leasing the land or renting the house? We do want to keep it for retirement in approximately 10 years. Love the show. Thanks for your time. Bye. This is one of those things that falls under. This is a great problem to have, but it doesn't mean it's not uh, indicative of some problems. It's far enough away that you're probably not going to be there that often. Uh, the part of the land that's cleared will be scrubby, 15-year-old, brushy regrowth uh, and be a, a, a new uh, woodland by the time you move there if it's not maintained in, in an open pasture manner. Uh, the wooded area will be a tangled mass, not an opened uh, woodland area by the time you retire, if, if you don't. With, and there'll be some big overstory trees that can be cool and all. The house uh, is subject to being uh, to degrading in condition. Uh, a lot of people think if a house is not inhabited, that it's, it's basically going to just be static and nothing will go wrong with it. In some ways, uh, houses are like airplanes. They're actually much better at longevity if they're flown occasionally um, and maintained regularly by people who fly them and don't want them to crash into the ground. So if you take a plane and park it on the ground and leave it alone for 10 years, uh, it's probably not flight-worthy or even close to flight-worthy, and it might take an awful lot of work to make it okay to fly it again after it sat there for 10 years on the ground. They're meant to be in the air, not on the ground. A home is meant to be dwelled in, not sit vacant. So those are the issues that you have, and how do we solve them? Uh, the ideal thing, if you could find a farmer who would be willing to lease the property from you, for the purpose of grazing those 20 acres uh, with something that will graze pasture-like and grazing those uh, that wooded area uh, at times and moving animals in there, and, and cattle can go in there sometimes, and, and pigs can go there lots of times, uh, that would be ideal. The issue is a 20-acre wooded, 20-acre open is, is probably not enough for a farmer to make a full income on. It's, it's probably just not enough for that type of activity. You have to go into a much more intensive activity, and it's tough to do with other people's land model. Farmers like to come in that like to use this lease land model and either plant corn and beans, which you don't want to do, uh, or to do things like pastured poultry, pastured pork, and you can make some dadgone good money on this. Um, and, and you might be able to make enough money the farmer really would pay attention to it, and it would be almost worth leasing that property if you had the right person to anybody that would do it. It'd be almost worth giving it to them to do it. Just say you can do it for free to maintain the property. You, if you had the right, since it's a hard thing, it's the right person thing, it would almost be worth letting a person live in the dadgone house who you knew would take care of it for free. Since the house is owned free and clear and all you have is taxes on it. Um, since it's owned free and clear, and it is a farm, it may already have an agricultural exemption. If it doesn't, you're going to have to have three years of agricultural activity on, the, on it to get the agricultural exemption. Given it's paid for in full, it is definitely worth getting that agricultural exemption to give the, the county masters and the state masters less money in property taxes. So I would definitely try to do that. 
as far as income uh, versus outgoing against it, one of the major expenses on real property is depreciation. But this is a conversation you have to have with the CPA based on the individual property because it has a lot to do with has that already been done to the property? Was it reset when you inherited it? Did that have any additional tax consequences for you that you don't do this? This is a CPA discussion. And specifically, it would be great if you had a CPA well-versed in real property tax code uh, and agricultural property tax code if the property is, in fact, agricultural in nature. These are the things that you have to think about. But the best way I know to maintain that property is to put a light activity of cattle through the forested part and a heavy activity of pigs through the forested part every year and then to graze the open with maybe cattle or sheep or goat, pastured poultry, leader follower type system. And I would be looking for someone willing to make the commitment to basically ranch your land in return for leasing it or uh, possibly in a profit share model. That would be another thing you could say. You come here, you do the work, you're doing the bulk of the work, you get 80% of the profit, we take 20, you have no cost of the land ownership, no lease against the land. You can just do it, but you have to provide your own portable infrastructure, your own money for the stock and things like that. I mean, that was, I, if it was my property... And I had somebody that actually, I, I vetted them out, and this guy knew how to run chickens, knew how to run hogs, knew how to run cattle, and I said, here's 40 acres, here's a house you can live in, I'm going to come about once a quarter and make sure you're not screwing up my house, tracking mud in the place, messing things up, leaving maintenance undone. If you are, I'm going to throw you out on your ass. Right? I'm going to have a contract that makes it real easy for me to throw you out on your ass if you're not fulfilling that, because I'm going to make living in the house... Not a tenant-landlord relationship. I'm going to make it contingent upon operations on the farm. I'm going to make it very clear of my timeline to when you need to be out. So you might be able to live there 15 years for all I know, but you ain't going to live there 16. We're going to be clear on that going in. And I'm going to have to be prepared that any day I might need to put a new person into that role. And I'm going to tell you what else I'm probably going to require. And it might freak some people out, but I would require it. I'm going to require that you allow me to hold a life insurance policy on you if you're going to be doing that job. And not for a ton of money, but for some money. And here's why. I'm going to need to go into emergency response mode if you die. I mean, your family's got a problem, but I have a totally different problem. I don't want you to die, don't get me wrong, but you know, unless, unless you are a family member, and I'm really scared, skittish on doing this with a family member, this is more of a, a partnership, I might even show up at your funeral, but my big concern is, well, now i got a whole bunch of cattle, a whole bunch of chickens, and a whole bunch of stuff on my property. And I've got to do something about it, and I live 400 miles away. I've got to be able to phone somebody up in the area that, that does animal management and say, fix it. And if he says it's going to be $10,000 to fix it, I need to be like, fix it, and I will have a check for you in 48 hours. That it's In a company, we call this key man insurance. So there's been times where we had companies being developed and we had one person in that company that knew something technologically speaking or had a certain gift for sales or development. And they, like if that person dies, the company's effed. Okay? It's just, it's the company's dead without that guy. So then we're going to put a life insurance policy on that individual held by the company for enough money that if he dies, we can fix it with money. 
or at least we can deconstruct what's left of the company and everybody go away happy with, with using that capital to make that happen. And again, in a business world, we call it key management. So should this property, should you transfer ownership of this property to something like an agricultural CS Corp or LLC, tax attorney, tax attorney, don't ask me, I don't know, I don't know. You know, should you put it in, you know, how, it's all, I think he said it's already in a trust. Does it stay that way? Do you change that? How do you manage this going forward? Who is the relationship? Tax attorney, tax attorney, CPA, tax attorney, CPA. Don't ask me. I don't know. But you've got to have somebody maintaining that property. Um, your only other option, go there four or five times a year, check out the house, make sure everything's okay, keep everything cleaned up, use it as a vacation home. Hire someone locally to brush hog the field. Let the woods do what the woods do. I mean, those are your really your only two options on a property that size. If you don't have the field cut, now there's another. Here's another option, right? Find somebody that's willing to use the land and lease the land to grow hay on it. You could do that. Hopefully, somebody would do it organically, or you know, do a, a, a grain crop, and not a not a corn crop. It's too intense. There's too much required for that. But you know, maybe somebody that's going to grow barley and wheat or something like that, you could do and and have some. You know, it, it's not ideal. It's better to graze the land. The land will be so fertile when you move there if it's been properly grazed for you know 10, 15 years. Um, it, it could be a really beautiful ranch to retire to, um, or find a permaculturist that wants to actually put it into a civil pasture model and, and what have you, uh, that's willing to use that opportunity and, and maybe wants some level of a opportunity to build a little cottage and be part of your little community in, in the retirement years. Uh, if you found a... Now, that's the other option. It's, this stuff's tough. You think it's easy to find people that, work, that... Everybody says they want to do this, and then nobody will. But if you could find a very motivated young person, 10, 20 years uh, younger than you, that would look at this as an opportunity for access to land to become part of a community with you. And that means that when you're of retirement age, you got somebody 20 years younger than you that's been running the place, that by that time they've built their own small home or something, there's room to do that there, and they're around. Boy, as a retired person, that's an asset, isn't it? You can actually go on those vacations even if you want to have your own stuff. So that's a, that's a, a nirvana solution. And it's possible, but, man, I've found that depending on people is a very dangerous thing to do. That you really have to, you, when you find the person that you can count on, man, that is something special. It's very hard to find someone that will work as hard as you would if given the same opportunity. Um, it seems like most of the people that will work that hard have other opportunities they're pursuing. And uh, finding someone that you can give that opportunity to that will make the most of it, it's tough. I'll just be honest with you. Uh, let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Mark from California. I really enjoyed your show on ducks and had a question. I was wondering if you could cover more on the ducks in an urban setting. I know you talked a lot of them, about them in your setting, which is three acres. Um, I currently live in a neighborhood with a little less than half-acre lots. Um, can I keep ducks in a 15 by 15 to 20 by 20 fenced area? Um, how would they do? Is it too small? Can I put straw down to keep mud out? Figure a little kiddie pool for water. Um, do they need shade? Uh, if you could just comment on those, please, I'd appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. People do. 
You can, and people do it with less space than that. I have some thoughts, though, that I think you should take into strong consideration before you do something like this. Number one, ducks do quack. Like that. Okay? And they don't do it all the time, but they do it. I have found khaki Campbells to be a little less vocal, but they... It still happens, right? So, um, but khakis are a great backyard duck. Um... They're not, as long as nobody's going to get upset, because I hear ducks quacking once in a while, no problem. Uh, and they're a very good layer. And if you primarily want them for laying, great. And if you live in a place where it's so totally okay to do it, no one can do anything about it if they don't like it anyway, then hell with them, let them hear a duck quack once in a while. Uh, to me, it's a beautiful sound. It really is, unless they're right outside your window screaming at you or something like that. So... You could go with khakis. You could go with any breed. I would kind of look toward the khaki. They're a smaller duck. Um, khakis, mine don't fly very well, but they can fly a little bit compared to the other ducks that are a little smaller bodied, so I'd probably clip their wings just to be safe, uh, which is no big deal. You can learn how to do that on the Internet in five minutes. Um, so that would be kind of the way I would go there. Um, you could go with a really big bodied duck, too. You're just not going to have to worry about them ever flying, like a Swedish or a Cayuga. Um, they're... I, again, I, duck flocks tend to be the sum of their parts, so maybe I'm not completely accurate here, but they're they're a little noisier. They quack a little more from what I've seen. And my black ducks are always quacking, and my runner ducks are always quacking. That's all I can say on that. So the other option then you would have are muscovies. They won't make any noise at all. The girls make a noise kind of like a pip, like a like that, and real quiet, soft. It's kind of cool sounding, and the drakes will make a kind of little a little bit of a vocalization, but pretty much what they do is they hiss like. Like that. So they're not going to bother anybody with sound. They lay not as good as your khakis and your other breeds, but they lay pretty dadgone good. And if you wanted them for meat production, you got a good mama that will produce a lot of babies, right? So you know most of this from my duck show. I'm kind of reviewing it for you here, though, because of your situation. So here's what I'm going to say. you got to think about the noise, and as long as the noise works or you use a quiet duck like a Muscovy, no problem. 15 by 15. It'll work, especially if you're doing, what, four or six ducks, okay? Wouldn't go much more than that. I wouldn't go a dozen ducks in that area. 20 by 20, much better. Much, It's a lot more room for ducks to move around. I think that's fine. But I think if you're going to do that, I would think of your ducks like a dog that lives outside and has a run. And when you're not home to supervise him, he stays in the run. And at certain times, when you want him to go to the run, you have to have him train to go back into the run and close him in. Okay? And then when you come home and you are there to supervise him, you let him out, and he wanders around your backyard. Now, if your backyard's fenced, this is easy. If it's not fenced, this could be an issue. Except, boy, can you put in cheap fencing for ducks. I mean, you need a two-foot-tall fence. As long as it doesn't have holes, they can go through, because they will go through holes. Um... Fencing, you look at it and go, that duck can't fit through that hole. <laughs> they can fit through there, especially when they're like half grown. They'll fit through holes that you just, there's no way they can fit through that hole. Pop right through, and then your garden pond, you don't want them in. So I would look at low fencing to fence them out of areas where you're concerned with them going, a perimeter fence for the property, and then that using that home area is fine. If you're going to put them in there and they're never going to get out of there, it, I'm not going to get overly upset about ducks. I'm not going to treat a duck the way Paul Wheaton 
treats a chicken. It's a duck. It'll be fine. But they like to roam. That's their thing. That's their natural behavior. They like to waddle around and eat weeds and grass and chase grasshoppers. And that's their lifeblood, man. That's, that's who, that's being a duck. Um, and you're also, if you're able to let them out every day, then you can put your kiddie pool in different places and they'll go there and manure there and hang out there and play there and be happy. And when you dump it, you'll be dumping your kiddie pool onto a grassy area where the water will work in and they'll put their little bills in there and help work it in for you. And then you move it and put it somewhere else and they'll waddle over there all happy like a bunch of little feathered dogs and go play there. If you put it in the confined space, and you go to just dump it out the way I dump mine out, and you have straw bedding down, it will wash the straw bedding down to the mud, and it'll constantly be a muddy area. So I would at least plan on their bath time being usually outside of their pen. I have a new duck watering system that I have to build that's going to go in my duck pen area, and this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to get like a 6 or 8 inch piece of PVC pipe, put a cap on both ends of it, I'm going to take a hole saw, and I'm going to drill holes in it big enough that a duck can shove his head in there. I'm going to put a valve in one, you know, core hole in the um, in one of the end caps, put a valve in there with a float valve, okay, and then take a water reservoir tank, and that way that, it, so like a small, like 200-gallon tank, a poly tank, just slightly elevated above the pipe, going to that float valve, and that means every time the ducks drink the water, the float valves go down, it'll open, It'll fill back up and shut off, fill back up and shut off. And that way they can get all the water they want. They can stick their heads in there because they got to be able to get their heads wet. And they can't make a mess out of it. Something like that, or a narrow, long, deep trough. Or you could just take the pipe that I'm talking about, and you could put the caps on it. It holds quite a bit of water and manually fill it up and just put a drain valve on one side when it needs to be cleaned out. I really recommend that for water in their caged area. If you give them a pool in there, a small area like that, they are going to mud it up, and they're going to mud it up bad. My philosophy with bedding is exactly what you said, straw. Uh, I put the straw in. When they have it all muddied and pattied and gross and nasty, I just put more straw on top. And they get it all muddy and nasty, I put more straw on top. I just do layers and layers and layers. My plan is once or twice a year, I'll go in there with a rake. I'll rake all of that out. I'll have a huge, beautiful source of high-nutrient mulch. I'll put a couple bales in there and start over, just like I do with a chicken coop, but it's a hell of a lot easier. Uh, so you can do that. Housing, all they really need is any type of little three-sided structure. You can do like a little lean-to things for them and stuff like that. Um, a, a big doghouse would be plenty for them. If you go with that approach, you make something that looks like a doghouse, a little door to go in, a little ramp for them to get up in there, keep straw inside there for them, etc. Um, I would kind of maybe build it with like a – you don't want to crawl in a doghouse structure to get eggs – and they, they, they may use it quite a bit, especially a small number of ducks uh, having the nesting instinct. They might be a little bit better with putting it in there than they are in the duck house I have with the large number of ducks in the large house. Um, so maybe like make the roof where the roof opens on one side or the whole roof hinges back so you can reach in to take care of things and get stuff out of there without having to crawl in it on your hands and knees where the ducks poop all the time. I will tell you that people that keep ducks in a duck house and can find them in the house at night spend a lot of time, like once every two weeks, completely mucking out a duck house and that we have never had to take the stuff out of our duck house yet. Because they will poop in there a bit. You just keep doing a deep litter mulch. 
but they don't do it much. If the duck has the option to leave the house to poop, they tend to do it. They poop like crazy in the yard, the enclosed yard area, but there's very little poop in the duck house. But I know people, again, that keep them in a house confined at night, it's pretty gnarly. More gnarly than chickens. Because they poop a lot more and a lot bigger, and they flatten it with those webbed feet. So I would not confine them to their housing. right? I would confine them to the yard because, let's face it, spread over 15 by 15, 20 by 20, uh, in, in a deep litter of straw that you can then mulch all your gardens and stuff with, it's not a big deal. Inside a, you know, a house, it's gross. It's nasty. You gotta clean it a lot. You got a lot of ammonia smell going on in there. So that's kind of the way I'd look at it. If you want to make that a run and they can come out, you have no problems. I would also advise you to set up a simple fodder system. I'll put a link to the video on how I do my fodder. Um, so that when they are, like in the mornings when you come out, you're going to work, they're not going to be out until the afternoon when you get home, you can drop a, you know, a plug of fodder in there for them because they just love the green so much. It'll cut your feed bill so much. Um, another thing you can do for them, get a bug light for your summer, your spring, summer, and early fall and hang it somewhere over their area and run an extension cord out there and plug that thing in at night and let it kill bugs and they'll just, They'll spend all night eating the bugs as they fall off that light. Uh, put it high enough that they can't get it and get in any trouble because they mess with stuff. So those are my thoughts on that. If anybody's keeping ducks in a small backyard area using a confinement-style system similar to this, please uh, uh, let us know in today's show notes for episode 1501. Uh, let's take another call. Hello, Jack. Brian from Delaware. My question is, what percentage of the American people do you think are living a preparedness lifestyle? Details. If your show reaches 110,000 people a day, there's roughly 300 million people in the United States. Do you have a projected goal of how many people you think your show will reach in the future? I'm on the road about 50 hours a week with my job for the last 12 years. In the last few years, I've seen lots of homes They have wood stoves, chickens, goats, greenhouses, high tunnels, etc. I'm really starting to see a lot of people that are living a preparedness lifestyle or at least some type of homesteading or micro-farming versus large cookie-cutter developments. They're starting to fade away. It may not be what they call it, preparedness living, but the outcome seems to be the same. I was just curious as to what you think a realistic number is of or have any idea of how many people are living preparedness lifestyle in America. Thanks again for the show, and I hope my audio is better than my last call. Thanks. There's a lot in that one. Let's just start out with, well, what percent of Americans would I consider somewhat of a, a prepper mindset? How many are there? Well, um, one of the first numbers I can look at and actually get a number uh, that would give me some inkling of what we what we have here is uh, the Mormon Church. The Mormon Church teaches preparedness as one of the tenets of their faith, and I'm not going to say that every uh, member of the LDS Church is a prepper, but I'm going to tell you that there's a preponderance there that's very very high, and I've actually been kind of surprised at what how high a percentage of my listeners are. Uh, Latter-day Saints church members. Uh, it's it's higher than I would have expected. 
So what's the total church membership for the LDS church in the United States? It's 6.3 million. In other words, if half of those folks are preppers, the TSP had 100,000 ain't but a drop in the bucket of uh, the preppers that are just preppers out of the LDS church. And I would say that the percentage there that's of that 6.3 million people is probably pretty high. But there's families in that, right? So, you know, it's more about, you know, yeah, a four-year-old in a preparedness household isn't the prepper. The parents are. So I don't really know. Um, I would tell you that where I grew up in Pennsylvania, I would have called half of the people in our expectation of the word preppers in 1980. Upon visiting there uh, back in 2004, I'd say the number's more like 20% of them now. In the cities and the suburban American McMansionville, I'd say the number's very, very low. Uh, among ranchers, farmers, etc., most of those people are preppers whether they use the word or not. You don't... You don't run a ranch in South Texas, in Kerr County, Texas, ranching cattle without a preparedness lifestyle because town is a convenience store 45 minutes away. So I don't think how many people ever listen to my show is really an indicator of how many people in America are prepared individuals. I'd like to believe the number is somewhere in the total uh, annals of about 20 to 25% of the people in this country are at least prepared enough to deal with a, a significant lack of services for, for two weeks to one month. And I know that may be hard to believe because every time there's a hiccup of a disaster, there's thousands of people in the streets freaking out and all. But let me put it to you this way. 10% of 300 million people, 30 million people freaking out in the streets, but it was only 10% that weren't prepared. Now, I don't believe anywhere near 90% are prepared, even to a, you know a, 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 the degree of being able to handle a hurricane or something like that. All I'm saying is just because you see a couple hundred thousand people displaced by a disaster that shouldn't displace them doesn't mean nobody's prepared. And I think that we have a certain amount of perception bias uh, that makes us feel that way, a certain amount of a, a superiority complex as well. I also think that we tend to look at disasters and say, well, if that happened to me, I am prepared. Well, you're not prepared if you all have all your food in your house and an earthquake knocks it down to the ground in a pile of rubble. right? You're not prepared for that. If your house burns to the ground, you can have things that mitigate that disaster, but you're not prepared to have your house burn down. Um, if you lose your job, you can turn it into an opportunity, but generally it's not necessarily not a disaster. I think that uh, prepared doesn't mean that a disaster doesn't matter. It means that you can better deal with a disaster than you would have been able to if, if you weren't prepared. It doesn't mean that you don't fear disaster. It means you fear it less. So how big do I think the audience of the Survival Podcast can become? I'd like to believe that at some point we can reach a million people a day. Um, I don't know that that's a hard goal for me. Uh, if you look at my growth over the years, it, it, it went boom, bam, bam, level, slow growth. Right? And that's typical of something like this, that you know you grow to a couple thousand really fast. You go from a couple thousand to 10,000 like lightning. You go from 10,000 to 20,000 like in a month or two. And then you go from 20,000 to 50,000 over a year, which is still impressive growth. And that takes a couple, three years to get from 50,000 to over 100,000. And then, you know, one day I'm at 100. One day I look at my download records and all. And you know, for the week before, I average 110,000. There's been weeks 
where I've peaked at like 120 because somebody said something about me and, and people came in. That's about the highest it's ever been. And right now it averages a, a hundred to a buck ten a, a week on average. You know, not a week, but a day when you average out the week. That's more than I ever thought it would be. Uh, but I want to explain something about the approach that we've taken here and what that hundred thousand number represents. My best estimate would be that almost half of those people, if not more, were not living a prepared lifestyle before they started listening. And that, to me, is more important than capturing the market share. You see, I I came up through corporate America working for various companies and building my own and, and understanding very clearly the concept of fighting for market share. So when I was with Fluke Networks, the testing equipment market had a market cap. We knew this is about how much money American corporations are going to spend on the type of year that we make this this year. We can forecast that. We know what they spent last year. We can look at financial analysis and stuff like that. And we know we got this big of a slice of the pie. And this isn't really a market that we can cause to grow. We can't really create that market. It is what it is. You either have high-end computing equipment that you need to test or you don't. And all we can really do is maybe force that market to buy a little bit more by tricking them into it through creative marketing and sales techniques. But in the end, what we're doing is we're fighting with Agilent for our piece of the pie to be bigger than their piece of the pie. And I want more of that market. When I started building the Survival Podcast, I was fully aware that there was a prepper market, a survivalist market. I looked around at all the people doing it, and I had been part of it as a forum member from several forums. I posted regularly to forums like the Backwoods Home Forum, which I've been a reader of for 20-plus years now. I posted to Frugal Squirrels. I occasionally posted to AR-15 uh, and some other forums and things like that that were in this niche. And when I started the show... I quit all of my activity. I didn't, I didn't draw anything from that other than people that may have naturally uh, known about me and followed me where I was going. I did not want to go out and try to take other people's markets. I decided I would create a new market. I would create a market based on fundamentals that we should all be doing because we're Americans. It wouldn't be, come here if you're a prepper. It would be, you should be prepared because this is part of the American spirit. This is what our grandfathers did. This is what our grandmothers did. It's damn sure what our great-grandparents did. It just makes sense. Let me tell you why. So I believe that the growth of our market actually represents, as the TSP community, that growth actually represents the growth of preparedness awareness in our country. So how many are out there I'm less concerned with, which then how many can I win over? That's how I feel about permaculture as well. I don't want to go out and preach to the choir in these worlds. And if the choir shows up and sings, great, hallelujah, right? And that's fine. You expect the choir to show up at church. But I want a church that's so welcoming, so to speak. And I don't really consider it a church. I'm using an analogy here just to be clear. But I want a church that's so welcoming, the choir's so happy and singing so loud that people walking by that never considered going in there before go, what the heck's going on in there? I want to check this out. And when they walk in, they go, this is awesome. I want to be part of this. Uh, where the, no the normal concept of business in America is just do a market analysis, let's determine the size of the market, and let's figure out what percentage of that market we can capture. Even niche markets often work that way. Where I believe that the new 
the new wave of entrepreneurialism in America is going to be the creation of new markets, whether it's uh, local food. He say local food, uh, you know, locally produced food is, is a niche, and there's a size to that market. Yeah, but, you know, instead of all these local producers fighting over what's there, if we actually effectively market how awesome, you know, local food is, what you end up doing is you have people finding out that it's even available, and the guy that went to Albertsons or Winn-Dixie or Publix or uh, Kroger or whatever every week starts buying part of his groceries locally. That's not capturing the, the local food market. That's creating it. That's what TSP is about. That's what I've tried to do. And at the end of this segment, what I have to say is thank you to all of you because you're the ones that helped me do it. You're the ones that went and told your friends and your family, you should listen to this guy. And when they, they said, I'm not into this survivalism, they go, well, he really isn't either. That's not really what he's talking about. Like, Here's one episode. Listen to this one episode about this thing that I know you like. The person listens and they're like, wow. You know, that's that's the person that was drawn in by the choir becoming part of the choir and going out and bringing someone else in. You know, that's a prosperity model. And, and I think that that's why TSP's been so successful. So can we get to a million? I don't know. Maybe by our 10-year anniversary it'll be just, duh, of course we did. Or maybe by our 10-year anniversary it'll be like, maybe that's not going to happen. Maybe a couple hundred thousand is, is possible. I don't know. Uh, but I don't really have any goals specifically at this point for how much bigger we're going to get. I don't actually pay attention to the number that much. In fact, the, the times that I do is when people ask. And I'm like, well, I haven't really looked into it lately. Maybe we have grown. Um, I've kind of gotten past that stage of the business. And I now feel that the most important thing that I can do is properly serve the people that are here and do the very best job I can for you. And money and growth will handle itself at this point. I'm not in the marketing. I just had my, my lead developer, Bobby, uh, from Gen Ford, who's working on some other projects with Neil, asked me some stuff on SEO, which I was like one of the top guys in the world with five years ago. And I'm like, you know, I'm going to tell you what I know from then, but I don't even know how much of this is valid anymore. That's not my approach. Now it's content, the best content, the most content, the consistency of content, absolute passion and concern and care for you guys. And you don't have to agree with everything I say, but but the only thing I don't want is for you to ever come away from an episode and go, Jack doesn't really care about me. Uh, and I mean that. I know that sounds like marketing to some people, but it's it's not. I, people tell me I'm wrong all the time. I don't give a shit. When you question my integrity and my intent, that's when I get upset. Because it means somehow I failed to convey that. There is nothing more important to me besides my family than this community. And when you start to feel that way about a business, you start counting numbers a lot less and counting the number of people that tell you you've made a difference a lot more. Let's take another one. Yeah, hey, Jack. Uh, this is Tom from Connecticut. Uh, I was calling about a question related to grafting. I have some property where uh, grapevines are growing on it. It's been unmanaged property for decades. There are grapevines growing two two inch in diameter of trees and killing them. So what I want to do is see about grafting some seedless grape varieties onto those vines and cut them back to save what's left of the trees and get some uh, seedless grapes. The grapes growing on them right now are somewhat bitter, even in their ripest state. They're just barely sweet. So I was wondering if that's a possibility, grafting a small uh, grapevine cutting uh, onto a two-inch diameter 
grape vine that's uh, probably decades old. Uh, so I appreciate your feedback. Thank you. Bye-bye. This is another great question for Nick Ferguson, so I'm going to turn uh, the the audio over to Nick's answer to this question now. And in the interest of just getting things uh, done uh, with a reasonable amount of time for a typically long Friday show, uh, as soon as Nick's done, uh, there was a question that came in by email that I deferred to Stephen Harris, and he's going to read that. So I'll go straight into Stephen Harris's segment as soon as Nick's done, and then I'll be back with a few more to wrap up today's show. Hey there, this is Nick calling in to answer Tom's question about grafting seedless grapes onto wild grapevines. The answer is a big yes. You're going to want to graft a few weeks before the vines begin new growth. Now, there are two methods that you can use for this. There's kind of an old school method used in Europe a lot, and there's a newer method um, that is used more commonly in America. So... For the old school method, use a cleft graft. This is this is a lot easier than the the newer method. The cleft graft is pretty easy. The cyan wood should have two buds. Just make sure you use a saw and make a small cut in the base of the vine to relieve sap pressure because these are large vines. You know, something about a thumb width and diameter. You don't need to worry about that, but if you have two inch vines, you want to make sure you relieve a little bit of that saw, uh, that uh, sap pressure with a saw, and you're talking about you, you know maybe a half inch to a one inch cut, and you're not going very deep, no no deeper than like a pencil width, and, and that's as deep as you should go. Now the newer method, the chip bud method, it's a little bit more difficult. But it's really commonly used in most of America. Just make sure you match the cambium and make sure that there's no air between the rootstock and cyan material. So wrap it tight and make sure there's good cambium contact. And that is actually something that I'm going to be doing on my property this spring. So best of luck. And remember, for all your plant questions, call them in. This has been Nick Ferguson from the Expert Council. Happy growing. Hi, this is Steve Harris from the Expert Panel calling in to answer a question that Jack forwarded to me from an email he got. A, g- a guy asks, what is your take on the RTL-SDR-TV dongle as a software-defined radio, those are called SDRs, for around $20, true, it's about 20 bucks. you can set up a laptop to monitor many different kinds of radio frequencies. FM, A, you know, nope, sorry, you can't listen to AM, that's too low in frequency. Uh, police, fire, aircraft, airplane locator, walkie-talkie, GMRS, FRS, C, CB, nope, he used, you said CB and you can't monitor CB with a standard SDR. It's uh, too low, too low in frequency. Uh, ham radio, yep, and you can listen to VHF, UHF ham radio. I can see several applications for this technology in, in, in an emergency. This would be a way cool way to f- get first-hand intelligence on what is really happening around you. I know Stephen is a very thorough guy. I guess I am. So I wanted to hear his take on this technology. Well, here we go. For everyone out there that does not know what an SDR is or a software-defined radio, 
It's a small device, a little bigger than a USB drive, that plugs into your computer, and it has a small antenna on it. The SDR is part of a radio, the front half. Your computer becomes the other part of the radio, the back half. Using software, it can do the signal processing that a radio would normally do on its own. The result is you have a radio that can watch TV, listen to FM radio, please fire, EMS, ham radio, etc. Sounds really great, doesn't it? Well, it's kind of great. Know how we say two is one, one is none? Well, this might be your number two or number three backup. The two is one, one is none. Three is for me, four is even more. Five means I make it home. But anyways, we have that all the way up to ten. I'll do it sometime for you later. Uh, the problem using this during a disaster or blackout is that it requires your laptop or your computer to be running. A desktop computer can monitor and LCD monitor can easily draw 100 to 200 watts of power. 100 to 200 watts of power is not something you want to run off of your battery bank or off your car very long. My number one laptop that I use for everything, and it's a big screen laptop, it draws 90 watts. That's a lot of power. I've seen some laptops that really draw as little as 10 watts, but you still have this big thing called a laptop hanging off of your radio. With a regular 7-inch LCD TV, which only draws 8 watts, and my favorite one is on solar1234.com, uh, and it lets you watch, it lets you watch TV. You can hold it in your hand and watch TV. You can put it on the table and watch TV. It's very small and lightweight. A police scanner is a radio that you also hold in your hand and it draws just a few watts of power or less. It can run off 120 volts AC or it can run off batteries. Having these smaller and low power devices lets me take them with me. If I have to hop in a car and go someplace, I can take the scanner with me. If I want to loan my neighbor my TV for a few hours, I can do that without losing my laptop. If I want, I can watch TV and listen to the scanner at the same time and or GMRS, FRS radios, which are really cheap, all at the same time, and the one that goes off gets your attention, which you can't do with the SDR radio. The SDR radio does have a scanning feature in it, but once you're listening to a frequency, you can't listen to the other one simultaneously like you can if you had a TV and a scanner and a GMRS radio separate. So I like the SDR radios. They have their place. They do a good job, but I really want you to understand these are not your number one item that you're going to rely on when the power fails and you're stuck in the dark. Also, the antenna that comes with it is just for you to start with. You can use it to get TV, listen to police and others pretty easily, but if you get the the antenna adapter and hook it up to a real broadband antenna called a disc cone antenna, you will literally have 100 times or more better reception, and you can listen to a lot more. I have an awesome SDR radio. It's software, the antenna adapter that you need, along with the coax and the disc cone antennas, all ready for you to look at at the very bottom of the page of radios1234.com. That's R-A-D-I-O-S-1234.com for you to see these or get them from Amazon if you so desire.
The SDR radio I selected has over 200 feedbacks on it. It's 4.4 stars, and it's really a good unit. I also called the company that makes the unit with a question. Their customer support answered on the first ring was very friendly, knowledgeable, and there to help. So if you have basic questions, they have great support for you. Again, everything is at the bottom of radios1234.com for you to take a look at, and it's pretty good. I got one on the way to me, so I can play with it firsthand. This is Steve Harris for the Expert Panel. For all of you new and wonderful people out there, you can listen to everything that I have done with Jack and all of my free shows and battery banks and how to power your car, house from your car shows and everything. They're all at Stephen1234.com, S-T-E-V-E-N-1234.com. You guys have a great day, and I'll see you on the next question. Thank you. Hey, Jack, Sean from Connecticut. Uh Hey, I wanted to share an awesome app with you called Waze, and it's a GPS app that um, it's like a social media GPS app where people let each other know about problems on the road. And so it's a really great way I found if you have a few different routes that you can take to get from point A to point B and you want to look at it and see where the problems are, this thing's great. And uh, so I just wanted to share it with you, and if you want to pass it on, I have no affiliation with the uh, people behind this, but it's a, I found that it's awesome. And the more people that use it, the better it becomes. Anyways, check it out. Thanks. Well, I listened to the beginning of that call like six times, and I could not understand the name of the app. I kept hearing Graze or Gaze. Uh, it turns out... That the name of the app, I did a little research and it wasn't hard to find, is called Waze, W-A-Z-E. I'm on their homepage right now. It says, get the best route every day with real-time help from other drivers. Waze is the largest community-based traffic and navigation app. Join other drivers in your area who share real-time traffic and road info, saving anyone, everyone time, gas, money on their daily commute. And it's available on Google Play. You can get it on Windows Phone Store. Get it on the iPhone App Store. So it's pretty much all the smartphones will be able to use this. Does it work well? I don't know. I haven't used it yet. I heard about it yesterday. I uh, was able to just figure out what, what the name of it was this morning. But I'm going to install it on my phone and, and play with it. And I wanted to put it out there because it sounds like something that would work. And I have a take on it that's interesting. So back when I used to sell computer hardware uh, for a company called Garrettcom, this is ruggedized computer hardware. This is stuff that you would use either in carrier facilities uh, or a lot of times for industrial automation and traffic control systems, what's known as ITS, or Intelligent Traffic Systems. The government has been for years trying to figure out how to make traffic flow better, and they spend billions of your dollars um, with all kinds of stuff that generally doesn't work. Well, this is a free market solution on a phone that probably works better than just about anything the government's done, and how does it work? It works, one, through the free market. It works, two, through voluntary association. And it works, three, through drivers taking responsibility for their own behavior. Um, sounds a little like actually organized anarchism to me. I'm just saying that it's, it's, it's a group of people who choose to uh, interact without need or oversight from government for the betterment of the, themselves. Where all are welcome, but no one is coerced to be part of it. Has anybody ever told you that was anarchism before? That's kind of what anarchism is. On that, I have a young man 
who is uh, a modern anarchist and, and raises yaks that will be on Tuesday. You're going to hear, you're going to hear a fascinating conversation about this type of stuff. Uh, once we get done talking about the yaks and the pig farming that he's doing, again, 16, uh, he'll be on Tuesday next week. But that was just my take that in a situation where government doesn't really do too good a job with all these traffic problems that People taking the initiative, and I think what's actually awesome about this is, yeah, the more people that use it, the better, but if there were multiple systems doing this at the same time with multiple groups, and group thought was causing different people to find different solutions to the same problem through different organizations at the same time, that it actually would probably make things better for everybody. Because group A, let's say it's using Waze, um, would take one alternate route around a problem. And let's say group B that we're going to call days might take a totally different path. And do you know what's even cooler? It would actually make it better for even the people not participating with those groups. Because as the anarchists left the building, so to speak, there'd be less congestion in the area where the problem is. And those that are hell-bent on attacking the problem head-on would be able to do so with less interference. Like it would be better for everybody if people were able to make their own voluntary associations and decisions. I'm, that's what I get out of this app. I'm just saying, let's take another call. Hi, Jack. Jason from Michigan. Question. Is it possible to take uh, Russian olive and use that as a rootstock onto which I could graft uh, any any cuttings that I would take here in the next couple of weeks from any fruit trees and graft on to the um, Russian olive and use it as a rootstock. Um, background is that I got a 10-acre parcel and uh, the back corner of which is very densely covered in Russian olive. And I, I wanted I'm very interested in getting started with some grafting this year. I don't have any other rootstock established at this point. I thought perhaps I could use. Uh, some of the Russian olive and maybe coppice that to a point that I could use that as a rootstock and then uh, graft onto that some cuttings, some scion with it I would take uh, from around the property, peach, plum, uh, uh, mulberry, apple trees, and then graft onto the uh, the Russian olive. I'm unsure if there's any um, necessary uh, compatibility that's required between the rootstock and the uh, the grafted portion, the scion wood, so uh, any clarity that could be provided on that would be much appreciated. Uh, thanks for all you do, and I look forward to uh, perhaps hearing this on uh, the Friday call. Thank you. If I wanted to give you a really short answer, I'd just say no next question, because everything you want to do with Russian olive rootstock will not work. Absolutely, positively will not work. Um, the Russian olive is part of the, the family Eliagnus. Okay? So if I want to do grafting with plums, that's the family Prunus. Plums include other stone fruits and things like cherries and what have you. And anything in the Prunus family can generally go on to most other Prunus rootstocks. If I wanted to do something with um, apples, apples are of the family Malice. And pretty much any Malice can graft to another Malice. So you're looking at Russian olive being in the family uh, Eliagnus. So... Gummies are an Eliagnus. Uh, autumn olive is an Eliagnus. And it's most likely that those plants could graft to Russian rootstock. They're so dadgone hardy and so dadgone similar and so often grown from their own roots or seed, there's not really a big call for it, but you could do it. But that's about it.
you you have got to match up what you're grafting and what you're grafting to. Um, you you can't even do something like so. I said you know a plum is a is a plum and an apple which is prunus and an apple is a malice. I can't graft apple to plum or plum to apple. It just doesn't work. It's like trying to um, attach, let's say, uh, a dog's leg uh, to a human who's had an amputation at the elbow. It doesn't work. It's different species. They don't go together. Even if you can match it up, they don't go together. Um, so it's about a, 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 you know, at that family level relation, family genus species. Usually, have to be at least the family the same for that graph to work in the world of vegetation. Uh, you can sometimes hybridize uh, outside of that family. Uh, but you, with certain pollination crosses, you can get things that are similar families, but you can almost never graft outside of that, that, that family. Let's take another call. Hello, Jack. This is Scott from Missouri. Uh, I had a question about Muscovy ducks. Uh, I just finished that podcast and, and found it excellent. Um, but I wondered, uh, you know, we have 20 acres of land, including a five-acre lake, uh, but we don't live there. We live about 20 minutes away and get out to the property every few days. I wondered if it would be possible to put a small structure out there for, uh, you know, a Muscovy population and, uh, you know, supplement their feed, of course, but sort of let them do their own thing. Um, we do have coyotes and raccoons and things like that. So um, basically want to know, you know, what your, what your thoughts on the plan uh, along those lines might be if, if they can go a few days without a whole lot of help, uh, that kind of thing. So anyway, appreciate what you do and look forward to hearing your thoughts. Thanks. Bye. I mean, the short answer is, yeah, they don't give a damn if you're there or not. They really don't. They do not care. Um, like I said, when I grew up as a kid in Florida, there were, you know, a lot of apartment complexes would have a pond or ponds, and uh, many of them would be inhabited by Muscovy ducks, and no one took care of them. Now, the caveat is kids came down there every day through bread to them. Uh, but a duck is not going to get all his nutrition from bread. Okay, so uh, you've got a, an absolute reality that uh, uh, Muscovies can just make it on their own. And uh, 20 acres and a 5-acre lake, I mean... Yeah, no problem. Now, you got a predator issue. So there's a couple things I would think about here. One thing that might be really cool, uh, that the ducks would probably use all on their own if you gave them the option, is a floating island. Because coyotes ain't big on swimming across lakes to get to a duck. Uh, raccoons will do it, but nowhere near as much. Uh, as if they were just you know, up for the taking, so to speak. So... You might consider putting a, a, a nice floating island in that they can use. And they may sleep on there and they may not. You just have to see. Um, another thing is, so I mentioned that they fly well. And they do. Uh, especially hens and younger birds. They fly really well and they have great big claws. When you pick up a muscovy, you really should be wearing long sleeves and gloves. And I'll do it without it, but okay, I'll just admit, when I was a kid, I was curious, and I always liked to catch animals. And one of my favorite things to do when I was about 10 years old was start feeding the Muscovy ducks at the apartment complex and seeing which one was stupid enough to get close that I could catch it. And when you've been catching something like that since you was 10 years old, you get pretty good at it. And I was a guy, kid that worked with venomous snakes and other things, so I'm pretty good at handling animals. If you're not, 
they and, and I can tell you there is still on one of my arms a, 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 a faint pink scar that's about six inches long that's from Muscovy duck claw. And it's not even from one I captured. It's from one that was flying, and I put my arm up to try to try to basically swat it, and he shifted gears and went across my forearm. Uh, so it was just a grazing strike, and it was painful, and it was pretty deep. Um, you ain't going to kill yourself or nothing with it, but you ain't going to like it. And if you get it hard enough, you might be going to get some stitches. So just understand they have those claws. And those claws are because these are a, a muscovy is a wild bird that we have domesticated, but we have not changed. A, a Cayuga duck comes from the mallard. You can just look at it. See, we've changed it a lot. It's bigger. It's black, etc. It is nothing like the wild parent. If you go find a wild Muscovy duck about the only changes that we've made in them, is we do have some that are all white and some that are different colors, but the majority of the pied-looking ones and, and whatnot, they look just like that in the wild. We've done very little to them. Uh, it's like you know when you plant uh, orach or lamb's quarters or uh, Malabar spinach in your garden, you're pretty much planting a wild plant. It hasn't really been maybe selected a little bit here and there, but not really. Okay, That's a Muscovy duck. And that means that they like to fly. And I said, if you have them in a place where you have them fenced in and all, clip their wings. In your place, don't clip their wings. And they will roost in trees. And that, because your only concern here, the only concern I have is predators. So I'm giving you different ways to mitigate the predators. Floating island or two on that lake, which you could build from a simple barge and an anchor. Right? And you could, you know, underneath it to keep it floating, you could do, uh, Basically, pontoons made out of six-inch cap PVC pipe or old foam or something like that. It ain't got to hold you up. It's only got to hold ducks, right? And if it gets to where it starts to sink, they'll, some of them will leave, right? And when they do leave, it'll come back up. It ain't that big a deal. And you could do a vegetated island of some sort, but anything like that would give them a place they could go. If you have any trees that, that they can get into to roost, that's fine. If you had trees that they started roosting in, you determined they were roosting there, then I would get some sheet metal, and I would girdle those trees in sheet metal for a few feet so a raccoon can't climb up it no more. And, and that would be another way to mitigate that. If you had, like, I've know, I know ranchers that have livestock guardian dogs that stay with cattle for weeks without anybody looking after them. They just have set up feed for the dog and stuff like that. And I don't really want to keep a dog that way, but you could. I don't think it's necessary, but you could. Um, and they'll take... Yeah, a good L livestock guardian dog will take to ducks just like it'll take to, to protecting sheep or cattle or anything else. It'll understand that's my, that's my pack. Uh, might be a little more frustrating for the dog because the ducks will spread out quite a bit more, but in the end, when they go to sleep at night, he'll look after them. The other way you can mitigate the predator issue is in just raw numbers. Your smart ducks will survive and your dumb ducks will get eaten. Um, so if you just got enough duck stock to start propagating more and more and more ducks, you'll probably have more ducks than you know what to do with. To feed them, I'd get a deer feeder. I'd get a deer feeder and a little 5-watt, 10-watt solar panel for it, and I'd set it up, and I'd set it where the, you know your ducks want to be fed. I'd set it to go off two or three times a day for supplemental feed. I'd keep that thing with 300 pounds of feed in it, and I'd let them forage for everything else, and I think you wouldn't have to worry about a damn thing. Um, now, if you want them for eggs and stuff, you can go on some egg hunts, 
But if you give them some places at night to go and, and, and roost and maybe some elevated spots where they can roost with some nice places to lay eggs, they, they might use that. I've never seen a muscovy lay an elevated nest. But I've never really seen a muscovy with an opportunity to lay an elevated nest. In, in, in Florida, growing up with them, you'd, you'd, you know, occasionally, like, you'd look in a bush, and they, they always try to hide, and they didn't want you to see them, but you'd see a hen, you know, a hen muscovy inside the bush, and when you walked over to her, she wouldn't leave. Once they sit, they will not leave. And she'd hiss at you and maybe peck at you, but you could lift her up a little bit, and you could see all those eggs underneath her. And I remember whenever I'd find one, I'd, I'd bring them bread, like, because I knew she didn't want to leave. This is the mind of a little kid I'm helping, right? And I'd watch them every day until those babies hatched. And it's kind of cool, and they're very good mothers. So I think this is not a problem. I just think the one thing that can wipe you out is the predators, and you have to, whatever you can do to mitigate that. You could do this. You could set up, um, like, a, a structure, a duck house and a duck yard with fencing, okay? Uh, you could put electric, uh, you know, you don't need a lot of money to do it on a small area. You could home those ducks to that yard by just caging them in and feeding them every day for a couple, three weeks. Don't let them out even one time for that three to four week period, almost a month. And you could still automate that. You could put a duck feeder in and everything else and, you know, be there every three days. You could do that. It would be better if you'd make the sacrifice and go there for about three weeks to home them a hundred percent to where, man, they just, at night, they're just gonna go there. And then you can put an automated door on it that just opens at, you know, 0530 in the morning and closes at nine o'clock. And that way, anything that's trying to get to them is gonna get their ass zapped. And the ducks that go in there at night will be protected and not get eaten by coyotes. And the ducks that don't go in there, nature will do some selection for you. That would be another way to look at it. But again, you could probably do it all with raw numbers. You got, you know, a hundred of them and, you know, 20 of them were drakes and threw them all out there. You might have a lot less at the end of the first year, but you probably have a lot more at the end of the second year. You might end up having to cull. Now, the one caveat that I've already talked about, if that lake of yours is full of turtles, specifically soft shells, big mud turtles, and red ear sliders, painted turtles, those types of turtles, they will eat baby ducks left and right, to and fro, on and on, on and on, on and on. Snappers will take full-grown ducks when they're big enough. But snappers seem to be more lethargic, and they got to be hungry to go chase a duck. These green turtles, and I'm talking about ones about, you know, as big around as a dinner plate and a little bit smaller, when them babies come out, bloop, 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 bloop. So you may need to do some turtle population control in order to have a sufficient duck population. Or you might have a natural stasis there. If you don't want too many ducks, you might just let nature take its course that way too. Because even with all the turtles we had, there still were a few more ducks every year. Uh, and I'll tell you, without the turtles in those apartment complexes, they would have been way overpopulated. And that was the only real predator in that situation was the turtles and maybe the occasional person that roasted a duck. I'm not saying I did it, I'm just saying it probably happened once in a while. Anyway, with that, we have one more question, and let's roll on. Hey, Jack, this is Scott Tony from California. Um, I am living on a half acre in Oakland, California, and working on transforming it into a permaculture farm. 
uh, one of the issues we're having right now is security. Living in Oakland, is a uh, it's a pretty high crime rate out here, and we've had some security problems in our neighborhood and on our property. So I'm wondering if you have any advice about using permaculture principles and using plants and things to add some security to our property. My roommate's solution is to hide up in a tree with a gun. I'm thinking more like blackberry bushes and things to keep people from crossing our fence. So any advice on that would be super helpful to us um, and I'm sure other people as well. Thanks a lot, and I really appreciate all you do, Jack. Uh, this is a, a general security question with a permaculture take on it. I mean, some of the things you could do is put up some signs, beware of dog. That might be, uh, that's a big deterrent to a lot of people. A lot of people are not afraid of dogs, even aggressive dogs. They just see a dog as another target. Uh, but there is a significant segment of the criminal population that as soon as they think that there might be a dog that'll bite them there, they don't want nothing to do with it. They're going to go steal something else. So that would be a signage thing. And other signage might be useful, like uh, warning, owner is armed or something like that, even if you're not going to sit in a tree. But that's a very delicate balance, especially in a high crime area, where that might actually make you uh, appealing to someone that cases the place and says, yeah, you're armed, but you're not armed when you ain't there. Uh, and, and might actually see that as a target to go steal guns because guns trade for money fast on the street, right? So, because even though it's against the law, somehow criminals don't obey the law or something like that. Gun control idiots. Um, so that's only limited. But the dog sign might not be a bad idea even if you don't have a dog. Uh, I do like the idea of ringing a property with thorny things because then it's just not so much worth it. If I wanted to ring a property with something easy to propagate and thorny, um, it may not be the best yield, but if I want to keep people out, Rosa Ragusa. And it's beautiful. These are the old English cottage roses. They have great big thorns and tons of little tiny hairy thorns, and they suck. If you tear your ass through a hedgerow made out of Rosa Ragusa and somebody saw you, they'd say, what Constantina wire fence did you fight with? It is bad, bad news. It will tear your ass. And it's easily propagated from cuttings, and it spreads by root, uh, by, uh, by root suckering. So it'll naturally spread as well. And you just prune it and plant it along. And, I mean, that you want something to keep people out. It's, uh, yeah. Uh, it'll do it. And, and it does have a, a really interesting yield. And that yield is not just cut flowers, which would be one yield, but it's also hips. Many of the Rosa Ragusa species produce beautiful rose hips, and not little hips like on our little dainty, hard-to-care-for, weak-ass, you know, pretty roses. Big hips. I mean, like, Giant grape, mini kiwi hips, and sometimes bigger, small tangelo hips. Uh, maybe not quite that big, but it's a kumquat size hips. And it's high in vitamin C. And it's probably something that, if you had a lot of it, a niche market could be created for. And rose hip jelly and rose hip soup, for those who've had it, is awesome. And again, the vitamin C is through the roof, along with some other really good antioxidants. So, If, if you wanted just one thing that you could plant that would be a significant barrier to people, I would go with that. Mixing it with blackberry is kind of cool, right? And blackberry can deal with a little shade. So if you did a two-layer system 
with a Rosa Ragusa to the outside and a Blackberry to the inside, so you don't have to reach through or go on the other side to pick the Blackberries. And by the time you're getting through this this big thorn, little thorn crap of roses and trying to get into this yard with the sign that says a dog's going to bite your ass there, you get into great big thorny-ass Blackberries and... I don't know if it was underplanted with a little bit of uh, stinging nettle uh, so that when you leave, now you got cut scratches open and the acid from the nettles that already causes a rash actually can get to the subcutaneous layer of your skin. Even if you got in and took something, you're not coming back to that place. It sucks there. That's that. That's the kind of approach that I would take if I wanted to do it with plants. Um a dog in that yard may not be a bad idea either, though. doesn't even have to be a big, mean dog. It just has to be a dog that when somebody's trying to get through all that stuff, sounds big and mean. We used to have a golden retriever years and years ago, and this dog was the friendliest dog you ever saw in your life. If you let this dog loose in a park, it went from person to person, ran up wagging its whole ass and immediately laid on its back and give me a belly rub. I mean, and from, I mean, per, as soon as a person stopped petting it, it just looked, got up and you'd call her back and she'd just run off and go find someone else to do it with. If you came home and she didn't know it was you on the other side of that door, you thought freaking Cujo was on the other side of that door. The reason I point that out as a valuable characteristic for a dog is a lot of people think of a dog as a got an attack dog and it, it'll defend and it'll bite and you know it'll do all that good stuff if it needs to. But then people don't want a dog like that because well what if somebody wanders in there that really wasn't worth hurt or somebody that did deserve to get bit but then they turn around and sue your ass or whatever. The dog is a bigger deterrent because of the perception than the reality. So if you can find a dog that sounds scary as shit but never would bite anybody, you ain't going to get sued for the dog. And you're not going to have some little kid randomly walk in your gate you forgot was there and get attacked in the face. Now, a well-trained dog's not going to do that anyway. A well-trained dog is not going to do that anyway. But most of us don't have the time to dedicate to training that type of dog properly. I think you should get, if you've never done it before, you should get a professional to help you if you're going to go that route. But just a mean-sounding dog, a barking dog, and a big dog, you know? Um, and then there always is the 140-pound gorilla option, the Max, the Max German Shepherd. Uh, yeah, he, I fundamentally will tell you that if you tried to come over my fence in the dark, you're probably going to get latched onto by that dog. Um But not only is the bark there, not only is the bite there, the, the intimidation factor is there, too. When somebody sees a 140-pound dog on the other side of a fence and he doesn't look like he wants you to come across it, the odds are going over that fence. So dog signage, plantings. Um, take your pick. But again, I cannot overemphasize Rosa Ragusa. It could be a bit expensive initially, but it would have to be more of a long-term plan. So you have to do something in the interim. But if you just started propagating the hell out of it, in a couple of years, you have an impenetrable wall of Rosa Ragusa on the outside, Blackberry on the inside with a nice little understory of a highly nutritious but somewhat annoying crop. If you don't know what you're doing with it, stinging nettles there, yeah, there's better places to go than there. And again, there's a dog running around in there. They might just decide that it's, Better to go to the neighbors to steal stuff. Anyway, uh, with that, uh, well, one more thing. Um, 
what we've learned from the activity of the urban farming guys in one of the worst neighborhoods in America is the more people you get involved in, in your neighborhood, the more people that simply come outside and are for uh, keeping the neighborhood clean and better and more involved and more vested in the neighborhood, the more the criminals just go elsewhere anyway. These neighborhoods fall into these high crime areas when the people that live there give up on them themselves. So if you can be a positive influence on your neighborhood and get other people involved and, and share that spirit and bring back that community to that neighborhood, the criminals will also go elsewhere. And instead of to your neighbor's yard, they're going to the next community. And I don't feel great about that, but I look at it this way. We all only have so much influence. My first place I can exert the greatest influence is my own behavior, then my family's behavior, and then my neighbor's neighborhood's behavior. And, and that's where I have to put 90% of my focus. So think a little bit bigger than your own backyard. Think at the community level, at least the surrounding homes. Get things going on in that community, and you will see, we've seen it time and time again, a decline in the overall crime rate in the community. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. We forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution is you.